Our sermon text this morning comes from the book of Exodus. We're continuing on in the sermon series we started three weeks ago or two weeks ago in the book of Exodus, a book of memory and hope. And this morning, uh, we're looking at Exodus chapter 1, verses 12 through 22. Um, so if you turn in your Bible there, we'll be following on. I'll be reading from the NIV translation. Um, if you need it, the, the text is actually printed in your order of service, so if you have that up, or you can you know, flip to it on your phone, or if you have a physical Bible in front of you. We'll be reading Exodus chapter 1, verses 12 through 22. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. But the more they were oppressed, that's the Israelites, the more they multiplied and spread, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile but let every girl live. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now, having read this in your word, your testimony to what you're up to, this dark chapter in the history of you keeping your promise. And Lord, our hearts break as we read it. This tragedy, this death. Lord, I pray as we reflect in these next moments on this passage that you shine your light as you did here for the ancient Israelites in unexpected ways, that you shine your light now into the darkness of our world, that we might catch a glimpse of your glory and majesty, that we might see the Lord Jesus Christ and the intentions for us that are proven through him, your intentions for love, for reconciliation, for thriving. pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The year was 1982. The place was uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, and the occasion was the NCAA Men's Championship game between the Georgetown Hoyas, uh, coached by the famed John Thompson, led by players such as Patrick Ewing and Sleepy Floyd, one of the greatest defensive college basketball teams of all time. So Georgetown Hoyas, and then you had the UNC Tar Heels, coached by the legendary, even by that time, Dean Smith, and led by players such as Sam Perkins. And James Worthy. It was a close game, and with just over a minute left to go, Sleepy Floyd from the Georgetown Hoyas made a shot, and it put Georgetown up by one with, like I said, just a little over a minute left. And so Dean Smith called a timeout, and he pulled his guys in, and as they huddled around him, down one with 
just right at a minute left in this championship game against one of the greatest defensive basketball teams in college basketball history, Dean Smith looked his players in the eye and he said this, we've got them right where we want them. We've got them right where they want them. Now his, his players might have been a little surprised, I don't know. Again, they were down one. They weren't winning. We've got them right and so instead of drawing up a play, Dean Smith, instead of drawing up a play for Sam Perkins or James Worley, who at that point had almost half of uh, UNC's points between the two of them, both of them proven veterans, both of them uh, 6'9", 230 pounds, he drew up a play for the only freshman on the court, the 19-year-old Mike or Michael Jordan. Now, Michael Jordan was talented, but nobody... Nobody in that arena, nobody watching on TV expected the freshmen to be the one with the ball in their hands at the most crucial moment in the championship game. As the timeout ended after this play had been drawn up, Dean Smith looked at Michael Jordan. And Dean Smith said this. He looked him in the eyes. He said, if the ball comes to you, don't be afraid to shoot. Don't be afraid. And like Dean Smith expected, Georgetown had set up their defense planning for Sam Perkins or James Worthy to get the ball. And so when the ball came to Michael Jordan, he was wide open. He took the shot. It went in. It put UNC up by one, and it was ultimately the game-winning shot. Now, what led the Tar Heels to victory that night? How, the, how could they combat the mounting evidence that they were going to lose down one? With the final minute of the championship game against one of the greatest defenses in college basketball history, what gave them the confidence to walk back out on that court and not shrivel under the pressure is that they knew they could trust the plan of their coach. They knew that their coach had watched hours upon hours of tape on Georgetown. They knew that their coach knew them better than they knew themselves. They knew that their coach could be trusted to be followed and so when Dean Smith said to Michael Jordan that if he had the opportunity to shoot and either win or lose the game, that he should not be afraid, Mike Jordan could hear him. And he could know that his coach believed he could do it even if he was the freshman. Now what we have in our passage that we just read is a situation far more serious than a college basketball game, even a championship. But I think in this passage we learn a similar lesson through the lives of two unexpected uh, heroes, maybe it's not the right word, two midwives, we learn this, that because God has proven his faithfulness, we can trust him even in the face of impossible difficulty. And the good news for us this morning is we're not just reading an historical document. We're not just reading a, a, a story to inspire us from a long time ago. We're reading a story of God, our God, the same God, who was faithful then and is faithful now. And so, uh, let's break it up into a couple different points and sections to get our minds around this. And the first one is this, flourishing in this world often leads to difficulty. Flourishing in this world often leads to difficulty. Now, to recap what's happened over the last few weeks, um, or, or what, what, not the last few weeks, what we went over last week earlier in Exodus, in the 400 years since the end of the book of Genesis, 
Um, and now, in our text, the Israelites have grown from a broken family of Jacob. That's 12 different sons from four different women. So this isn't like the bastion of righteousness. This is a broken home. But this broken family has grown into a people, into a multitude. They've grown from 70 people who came down in Egypt into a multitude who makes up a significant population in the kingdom of Egypt. The people have thrived. They're flourishing. They're growing. And a new king has arisen, a new pharaoh has arisen in Egypt. And out of fear and out of an outlook that sees people as things to be used, he has taken the Israelites and enslaved them. And that slavery has been incredibly profitable. You may remember in the passage last week, he enslaves the people and puts them to work. And the next thing that happens is they have to build store cities, entire cities to store the treasure that has been built up on the back of Israelite labor. But in the face of that, the Israelites continue to thrive. They continue to flourish and grow. And so here in verse 12, in the start of our passage, we see that that fear and bigotry of Pharaoh has spread to the Egyptian people as a whole. Earlier it was Pharaoh, a man with power who set stuff in place to take advantage of and to use the Israelites, but now the fear has spread to the Egyptian people as a whole. As it says in verse 12, look at it. The Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, and in their fear they sought to make the lives of the Israelites as bitter as they can. They treat the Israelites as little more than cattle to be used. Working them, as it says, ruthlessly. Ruthlessly. That's a word that's used twice in just those two verses. This is a profound wickedness. It's one we touched on last week that has echoes in our own national history. Has echoes in the white supremacy that has so shaped our history and our present. And that was something born of the same fear and the same ignorance and the same godlessness that we see here in Egypt. But back to Egypt, it says the Israelites worked them ruthlessly. The word highlights that this slavery wasn't just kind of some economic system of bosses and workers. This is an entire system that is designed and used to grind all the labor the Egyptians can get out of the Israelite bodies before it takes those bodies and throws them away. Which is exactly what Pharaoh turns to next. Notice, not only do they make their labor harsh and work them ruthlessly, using up their bodies for, uh, for gaining wealth, what do they do? Not only does he plan to squeeze all he can out of the Israelites, he plans to destroy them as a people entirely. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. And if it's a daughter, she shall live. This is wickedness of the highest degree. Pharaoh thinks he's all powerful. He thinks he can say jump to these women and they'll say how high. He thinks that he has the ultimate power of life and death. And so he asked these midwives, whose training and whose life was about bringing life, new life into the world, and sustaining life. He asked these women whose entire lives are, is about being helpers, aids to life. 
He asked them to become destroyers of life. And here in this passage, in him asking these women to do this, we see not only bigotry, which is obvious, he's asking them to kill specifically Israelites. We see what we would call, in modern terms, misogyny. Here's what I mean. Notice he commands them to kill the boys, but to let the girls live. Why? Because he thinks that he has nothing to fear of the girls. He has nothing to fear of the women. He thinks he can command those two women to kill all these boys, but he thinks he can let the girls live because they are nothing to be feared. And this, if we keep reading Exodus and where it goes next, this is Pharaoh's fatal mistake. He underestimates the women and the girls. And if we read closely in Exodus 1 and 2, that is his undoing. Because he plans to destroy the thriving of Israelites. But that plan is undone through five women. We meet three of them in next week's passage. A woman named Jochebed, a little girl named Miriam, and the unnamed daughter of Pharaoh himself. But we meet two of them here in this passage, the Hebrew midwives. Shifra and Puah. As I said, they're asked to do one of the most wicked things I can think of. To wait for the birth of a child, to hold it in their hands, to see if it's a boy or a girl, and if it's a boy to kill it. In this case, this great blessing of God upon the Israelites, they're thriving and they're growing, has directly led to incredible difficulty as the Pharaoh and the people of the Egypt simply respond out of fear and seek to exterminate the Israelite people. Now, of course, our question is why? Remember, I called this section, uh, flourishing in this world often leads to difficulty. Why? Why is God's blessing often met with difficulty? Well, I think it's helpful to think of it this way, in the terms of a cornered animal. Oftentimes, you can ask hunters this, I'm not a hunter myself. Um, oftentimes, a wounded, cornered animal is more dangerous than a healthy Hunters throughout human history have known this. The cornered animal knows the danger it is in and reacts violently. Why do I bring that up? It's because of this. When God blesses his people in this world, it is a sign to Satan and the powers of darkness. It is a sign, it is a sign to all those who try and wield power against others that they've been put on notice. The blessings of God are an indication to the powers of darkness that they are not ultimate, that they do not have final say, that they have been put on notice, an eviction notice, that this is God's world, not theirs. Remember, after all, in this passage here, that we have a whole Bible that follows this. This story doesn't just end in Exodus when it keeps going. And it tells us where this story ends up. These seemingly small things that are happening here to these two Hebrew midwives... It grows and eventually ends up in God providing redemption through Jesus Christ and overthrowing the power of sin, death, and the devil entirely. So it should be no surprise at all to us when we read this passage that we see Pharaoh and the powers of darkness working, conspiring against God, keeping his promises, working and conspiring against destroying the people from whom Jesus will be born. It should be no surprise that a sinful world reacts so violently to God's blessing. 
for the sinful world, here shown to us in the false political powers of Pharaoh and the nationalistic fear of the Egyptian people, is like a cornered animal who is sure to be defeated. Now, all of God's blessings, all of God's blessings of us, no matter what they are, no matter if they're given to us individually or us together corporately, all of God's blessings are tied up in His purposes to redeem His world from the power of sin. All of them. And that means that every blessing that God has given to you, to your family, every blessing given to our hand is a resource given to us on trust that we in turn bless others. And in doing that, in doing works of generosity and works of service, in living lives, serving others, and promoting life, and promoting justice, in doing those things, we are declaring that Jesus is Lord and Pharaoh is not. We are declaring that, that, that sin has a termination point. The power of sin cannot win. We are declaring that Jesus is Lord, Pharaoh is not. In the terms of the New Testament, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. In the terms that we see today, Jesus is Lord, not our uh, nations, not the governments that we elect or don't elect. Jesus is Lord, not the Republican Party. Jesus is Lord, not the Democratic Party. So we shouldn't be surprised in this world that difficulties come upon those who are blessed by God, who are flourishing and thriving. Again, because I said it's a, a notice that's been put on the powers of darkness, that they are not ultimate. And we shouldn't be surprised when we face difficulty because Jesus, when he was in this world, he assuredly faced difficulty, right? He's the only sinless human being that has ever lived, came to seek and save the lost, to provide forgiveness and deliverance from sin. He was met with hostility and rejection. In the words of John chapter 1, he came to his own and his own did not receive. He faced hostility and rejection. You know, before I move on from this section, one of the most remarkable things I've noticed about the most compassionate and loving people that I know is how difficult it is for their compassionate and loving hearts to live in the strife of this world. This world is no place for a tender heart, right? The world we live in is not a place that's often safe for compassion and love. And while we can all agree that being awakened to others and having our hearts enlarged by your love for them is a great blessing, it is often a blessing that comes with incredible difficulty because these hearts that are awakened to God and to others often are slashed and bleed, are often hearts that are broken in a world such as ours. In other words, to love in this world at all is to have your hearts broken over and over again. But in our lives, in my life at least, our broken hearts are often the ways that our heart becomes open to others. Our pain is the places where grace is renewing us. Our pain are the places where God's light shines out from us. Now the temptation for us is to close our hearts off to love and compassion. Just like the temptation for Shifra and Pua would have been to obey Pharaoh's orders here, right? They, they could have rationalized the way he's far more powerful than us. We can't possibly not do what he says. We might think that the, the cost 
of love is too high of a price to pay. But there's one thing clear in this passage, that even though difficulties may arise from flourishing, difficulties may arise from God's blessing, it's our second section here, our second point. These difficulties, as difficult as they are, are temporary. Are temporary. And because they're temporary, we must not lose heart. For while Pharaoh, the pharaohs of this world, the Egypts of this world are at work asking midwives and us to do these terrible things, to love the wrong things, to chase after the wrong things, we have the example here in verse 17 of these midwives. Look, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. They feared God. What we see in this passage was for them to obey and follow after this way of life that used the Israelites up and sought to destroy them. For them to do that would be to be to fear Pharaoh more than they fear God. To see Pharaoh as more ultimate. To see him as more powerful. They feared God. Now notice in throughout our passage the word fear is used over and over again. In verse 9, Pharaoh is responding out of fear. We talked about that already. In verse 12, the people were fearful and in dread of the Israelites. Pharaoh and the Egyptians feared the loss of their political stability. They feared the loss of their great wealth and this labor, this, uh, these Israelites that they have used to build up the wealth of their kingdom. That's what they fear. And out of their fear, they react with violence and power against the Israelites. Israelites who have done nothing to them, nothing at all, only been blessed by God. They've only thrived and flourished. But the Hebrew midwives here, in this environment, steeped by fear and suspicion and competition, the Hebrew midwives in their lowly place as servants from a group of people who were slaves, these midwives, they knew the score. They knew the score better than Pharaoh ever did. They realized that, yes, Pharaoh was powerful, and they realized that the Egyptians were numerous, and they certainly were, but they also realized that they were not ultimate. As I said, Pharaoh and the work of God and his commitment to destroy the power of sin, the pharaohs of this world are not ultimate. They're put on notice. The Egypts of this world, the kingdoms that will build themselves up on the backs of others, they're not ultimate. They've been put on notice. They are not ultimate. So what comes, come what may for these midwives, they were not going to listen to this evil command to destroy these young babies. Despite what might be a mountain of evidence to tell them that they were doing a foolish thing that would cost them much. Despite the mountain evidence that they, as slaves who had only ever known the power of Pharaoh in the land of Egypt, were set to face incredible retribution. Despite that, they trusted God more than they feared Pharaoh and Egypt's power. And they took the path of righteousness. They entrusted themselves to their faithful creator, who they believed was not only powerful, but good. They trusted themselves to him, knowing that they might face incredible difficulty, but those difficulties in the plan of God and his intentions and his kindness and grace are not ultimate. You know, I really wish that the names of Pua and Shifra, which I don't, I've never met anyone with those names, I really wish those names were more common. I do. Because one of the most remarkable things about Hebrew names is that they meant something. 
Built into the, the names that parents would give their children it were the hopes for that children's future. Parents would name their kids and it was, it was filled with hope of what the child would be, what they would do, how they would live their lives. The name Pua here, it's akin to the Hebrew word meaning brightness or beauty. A word almost exclusively used of God, the beautiful God who shines in His glory. Pua means brightness and beauty. The name Shifra, it means fairness or justice. Fairness and brightness. Justice and beauty. That's their names, justice and beauty. How well did their parents name them? Justice and beauty. These two women, lowly in the sight of everyone, not even, uh, not even feared at all. Pharaoh not seeing them as a threat. Justice and beauty not a threat to him. They did not bow to the power of of Egypt, but they responded with beauty and justice, preserving life. Beauty and justice. What joy. Let's pause here. What joy must be theirs in eternity? What joy must be Pua and Shifra? Because there's no way in the immediate experience right here that's recorded for us in Exodus 1 that they would realize how far the effects of their actions would reach. They might have only thought of themselves as two women preserving the life of a few slave children. Only doing the right thing because it was the right thing to do. And that's worth it. It's worth it to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. But the text says in the aftermath of this, they were blessed with families of their own. And that's great. And maybe they thought, as they were older women, that that's as far as that would but I want us to think about the ripples out from their actions. Because of their faithfulness here, Moses was born. Because God used Moses, the people of Israel were delivered from slavery and given the promised land. Because of Pua and Shifra's uh, faithfulness, David was born years later, who would be the king after God's own heart and the one to receive promises regarding a descendant who would be the king of God's people and save his people. Because of their faithfulness here, Jesus was born, who has provided redemption finally and ultimately, not from all the effects of sin. And because of their faithfulness, we here today stand in the grace of God. Pua and Shifra aren't just neat characters from a cool story. They're our grandmothers justice, and beauty. Now friends, we may never face a situation as dire as our grandmothers, but our brothers and sisters around the world face such things as this, and as we are one with them in the Spirit, we must join our prayers to theirs that they may be strengthened in their time of testing. In our lives, we may face much less severe but difficult situations, but in them we're called to act like our grandmothers here. We are called to trust God and not fear Pharaoh or Egypt, the Pharaohs and the Egypts of our world. We must not act as if God does not exist. We must not allow ourselves to bow down to our fears like Pharaoh and the Egyptians did. 
You know, the book of Exodus continues on after this passage, and the dramatic tension grows even stronger. Things become even harder for the Israelites and more dangerous for them. We see that in the last verse that we read together, that after this has happened, Pharaoh tells the Egyptians that they must take Hebrew boys and throw them into the Nile, into the river. Our first point this morning that God's blessings are sometimes met with difficulty is shown to be true as we keep going. But because of our second point that these difficulties are temporary, we can realize our third and final point. That we must live out of that which is more true. Knowing that there is no power that can thwart the promises of God. We must live out of that which is more true. Not the lens through which Pharaoh and uh, the Pharaohs of our world see this world. We must live through that which is more true, the promise of God. His purposes will be accomplished. Through the long line of the history of Israel, we see God fulfill His promise to destroy the power of sin. That promise first made in reaction to the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden. That promise that was made to Abraham to bless every family on the face of the earth through a descendant of his. We see God keep that promise. In Exodus, we learn that not even the great power of Pharaoh can thwart the plan of God's redemption. And in Jesus Christ, we learn what? That not even the powers of death and sin and the devil can thwart the plan of God. And Jesus has promised and shown us that this unstoppable plan is for our it is our God that is at work. And if we come to Jesus by faith, this plan that has overcome every seemingly powerful instance of opposition against you is for you. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, we've abandoned the temporary destined, uh, destined to fall powers of this world for the grace of God in Jesus. And then this is the call to us to not fear this world and its dangers but to trust in Him. We don't have to fear what will happen if we do the right thing, even when it's hard to do. For we can know that God uses our obedience to testify that He is Lord, not Pharaoh, that this is His world, not sins, not the devil's. The reality of God's unstoppable plan to redeem that which was lost through sin is not only something to believe, it's something that reorients our entire lives. For God's plan is not only to give us something to believe in, but to transform us into people who embody with Pua and Shifra were named justice and beauty. And so that's our calling in this world as I'm wrapping up here in this sermon. What is our takeaway here? It's a calling to us to pursue justice, to pursue beauty in this world, to trust in God, the God who's shown himself not just through uh, the actions of two midwives, but who has come definitively into our world in Jesus. And though he, was, uh, he faced opposition at every, time, at every side, though he was abandoned and spat upon, though he was crucified, God used his obedience. God used the, the life of Jesus to be the place where our sins are judged by them being removed from us and placed on him. And so what remains from us in the aftermath of Jesus? It's no wrath for our sin. The wrath has been extinguished. What remains for us is the unending grace and love of God. 
I'd like to leave us this morning with the words of the Apostle Peter, who was writing to a group of Christians in the very first century, just a few decades after the time of Jesus, who were about to face some difficult circumstances. He was writing to a group of uh, Puas and Shifras, <laughs> who were looking at a world who told them that Caesar was the Lord, not Jesus. And hear the promise in the words of Peter written to these people. And know that in Christ this promise belongs to you. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. 